Shreveport, Louisiana. I'm so glad we can bring to this auditorium and this audience and the people of God tonight a precious young man filled with the Holy Ghost and led of the Holy Spirit. Brother Michael Hudspeth has been reared in Pentecost. And their parents who loved the Lord trained him to walk with God. No doubt brought up on a church bench. No doubt slept on a pallet. You all know what that is? That's something they laid on the floor so you could lay down and sleep and prayed that nobody danced on you. A lady was, I thought, trying to awaken her little boy one night while I was about ready to preach. And I signaled her, don't awaken that boy. In fact, I was watching him sleep. He looked so at peace, I wanted to lay down there with him. I said, don't awaken him. She said, later, why did you tell me not to awaken my boy? I said, really, ma'am? She said, he, I wanted him to hear what you said when you preached. I said, he heard it. She said, he did? I said, yes, ma'am. There are sounds in a Pentecostal meeting that go through your skin, your cranium, down into your soul, asleep or awake. And I believe that's where Brother Mike Hudspeth was growing up in the ways of God, in the house of God, dedicated to God. Now he stands to preach the gospel. Isn't it great to rear your children in the fear of God? I said, Brother Mike, open your heart to us. He said, I want to, and I believe he's going to. Thank you, Brother Urshan. Praise the Lord. There's a mighty touch of the anointing of God on this place tonight. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother Urshan, for this meeting. I have been blessed, feasted, gleaned, learned, and have been inspired. I believe the Lord's coming back. Hallelujah. Brother uh, Lumpkin greeted me with these words when I came to the platform and said, uh, How do you feel tonight? I didn't answer him then, but I do feel somewhat like a piano at a Church of Christ convention. Just a little bit out of place. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but the Lord has some good things for us tonight. Do you believe that? Aren't we having a great time here in Little Rock? Oh, praise God. Praise God. I'm going to cut out a lot of preliminary things. I, I have been uh, observing the different viewpoints, varieties of interpretation, what have you. And uh, before I get into that, I, I just want to respond to Brother Urshan's statements. I, I remember being in this auditorium before general conference here. I was just a lad, and uh, I have been raised in Pentecost, United Pentecostal Church, and I love this organization with all my heart. Thank God for what it's done for me and for all of you, and I feel like we're right in the will of God 
in this prophecy conference tonight. Praise God. I uh, picked up a little poem I'd like to start off with tonight. As we view the varieties of interpretations and viewpoints of prophecy, I'm reminded of the poem of the blind men and the elephant. It was six men of Indostan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to me is mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus bowled up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, Exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong, the moral, so often theologic wars, the disputes I ween rail in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. is not a perfect parallel with this prophetic conference, but I did think of that poem, by the way. And I realize that I take the risk tonight of being the seventh blind man in examining the prophetical elephant. But praise God, I have one of the most exciting and intriguing subjects in all Bible prophecy, in my opinion. Israel in prophecy, praise God. Do you want to hear from the word of the Lord tonight? Yeah. Prophecy is like a bottle that is being filled with water. It takes quite a length of time to fill the major portion of that bottle. But once the water gets into the neck of that bottle, it happens all at one time. It begins to fill up all at once. And I believe that's where we are in Bible prophecy tonight. It is happening so quickly 
And uh, I want us to pray right now, before we go any further, that the Lord would anoint our hearts and our minds to receive the inspiration of the Word of God concerning Israel in prophecy. Will you pray right now? Amen. Hallelujah. Have your way, Lord. Hallelujah. God, just speak tonight by your Spirit. Praise God. Hallelujah. Open our understanding, Lord, in Jesus' name. Praise God. Amen. Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord bless you. Tonight, I will attempt to answer several questions. Who is Israel? What's the deal in the Middle East? Who is the rightful heir to the land of Palestine? Where are the ten tribes of Israel? When is the restoration time for the nation of Israel? What is the significance of the recent Camp David Treaty between Israel and Egypt? And what is the relation of Israel to the fig tree generation? Is the year 2000 significant in prophecy? And is there prophetical significance to the seven Jewish feast? An intriguing subject tonight, Israel in prophecy. Israel is God's time clock. All of the time frame of prophecy, even relating to Gentile powers, revolves around God's relationship in time to the nation of Israel. I want to identify, first of all, who Israel is. Some would say Israel is Judaism. Some would say Israel is the New Testament church. Others would say Israel is the Anglo-Saxon nations. Others would say Israel is the seed of Abraham. But we must go back to the book of Genesis to Abraham. God called Abraham out of paganism that he might have a special people on the face of the earth. And God gave Abraham specific covenant promises. He said, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. I'll make your name great. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I will make you the father of many nations and kings shall come from out of thee. I will give to your seed all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. You'll find record of those covenant promises throughout the book of Genesis. So God gave the promises to Abraham and time rocked on. And Abraham developed a problem. The problem of Abraham was that he had the promises, but he did not have a seed to inherit the promises. And so Abraham rushed God, got in a big hurry, and as a result, a product of haste developed in the person of the problem child, Ishmael. Ishmael was born. He was a product of haste. He was uh, not counted to be the seed of Abraham according to the scripture. Ishmael was not the son of promise. So 13 years later, God spoke to Abraham in the 17th chapter of Genesis, and he said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him 
for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly and I will make of him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac. The Lord spoke to Abraham and said, Get this clear. You will have sons born of your loins, but there will be only one son that is born of you that will be counted as the righteous promised seed. Ishmael will be blessed. Ishmael will prosper. Ishmael will receive gifts. But Isaac will receive the covenant promises. You say, why is that? Because Genesis 21.12 declares, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Not in Ishmael, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Not in any of the other sons of the concubines that Abraham had. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And Isaac received the fullness of inheritance. I like that. The fullness of inheritance when the sons of the concubines merely received a partial blessing from Abraham. The 25th chapter of Genesis, verse 5 and 6, tells us that Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. Get the picture. The fullness of the blessing was given to the son of promise. Abraham gave Isaac all that he had. He held nothing back. But unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son. Abraham gave to Isaac the fullness. I'm glad that we, because we have the right mother, and uh, Abraham uh, gave uh, this gift uh, unto his other seed, but to his special favored son, he held nothing back. I think that's significant. I thank God that we have received the full revelation of the new birth message of the incarnate God in Christ that was manifest. He has held nothing back to his special seed. I believe God has a spiritual seed in this earth that he has favored and held nothing back from. The other religions, the other products of the birth of the Father or the Spirit will be blessed in measure and will even have gifts from the Father. But the inheritance belongs to the sons of Isaac. Praise God. Hallelujah. I could go in a direction here that I'd better not go in. I'm talking about Israel in prophecy right now. And we are faced with some current things that there are a lot of questions going over in our minds. What is the problem in the Middle East tonight? This is a broad subject. I'll deal with it briefly. But what, what is the root problem? We, uh, through the media, are constantly hearing about the pressures and the problems and the conflict and the strife in the Middle East and the countries in that area. Is it oil? Is it the economy? What, what is the problem? I believe that it's a simple problem that uh, didn't begin two years ago. It didn't begin with the formation of OPEC. 
It did not begin in 1948 with the establishment of Israel is becoming a nation, but I believe it can be traced 4,000 years back to a family fuss. That's what it's all about. You have heard about the Hatfields and the McCoys and all of the cussing and all the ratting and the raving and the fighting and the fussing and the carrying on. But let me refer you back to a family quarrel that goes back to the tents of Abraham 4,000 years ago. Listen to me. Isaac and Ishmael never could get along in the same living quarters. They never could have peace as long as they were close together. And uh, today it is remaining the same. Uh, Abraham's tents are full of fighting. There's strife in that area. Isaac and Ishmael cannot live in the same area even today peaceably. And so the battle of the family continues. It's the star of David against the crescent of Mohammed and behind the scenes of most of your international conflicts today is that hatred that is being generated between the Jews and the Arabs, the sons of Isaac and of Ishmael. What is the real issue? Is it the oil? I don't believe altogether the oil. I believe it goes back to the rightful heir of who the land belongs to. Whose land is it? Who does Palestine belong to? Well, we have debates in a lot of circles. Even our government of this country is being torn and the senators and the Congress and the public opinion uh, is being torn these days. Do we support the PLO? Or do we support Zionism? Or do we support the nation of Israel? Or do we support the Arabs? Whose land is it? Whose side do we take issue with? And uh, we could speculate and we could comment and we could have personal opinion, but let's go to the Bible tonight for the answer to this question. The question is, who does it belong to? Both Isaac and Ishmael have the same father. Um, Isaac would say, uh, Abraham's my daddy. And Ishmael would come right back and say, well, he's my daddy too. Amen. So the land belongs to me. But Genesis, the 21st chapter, verse 12 says, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Isaac is the seed that God recognizes. And God spoke to Isaac's son, Jacob, some years later in the 35th chapter of Genesis, verse 12. And God said to Jacob, The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee I will give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. He's speaking to Jacob, who came from the loins of Isaac. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. And then later Amos in the ninth chapter, verse 15, prophesied concerning the nation of Israel that came from Jacob, sons of Jacob, sons of Israel. And that prophecy says, I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord. Clearly, according to the scripture, the land belongs to Israel, but this has created a bone of contention in the world and international scene today. And right today, there are three major religious people and groups 
that are bidding for control in the capital of Israel, the city, or the proposed capital, that is. Uh, of course, Tel Aviv uh, has uh, for a good while been the national capital, but uh, there are three religious groups that would like to control the historical city of Jerusalem, and of course, uh, the Israeli Knesset, which is the official legislative body for Israel just this year, 1980, approved a bill that sent shock waves around the world. They declared that Jerusalem, not Tel Aviv, but Jerusalem will be forever the capital of the nation of Israel. And tonight, Jerusalem is being bidded for by the Jews and the Arabs and the Christians three major religions, the, the proponents of Judaism, proponents of the Muslim religion, and the Catholic Church are all vying for control of that city. And I heard a rumor last week that uh, Mr. Sadat, who was instrumental in Camp David Treaty to bring peace between the Arab world and uh, Israel, is going to be spending $70 million in the near future to erect uh, a uh, sanctuary uh, called the World Peace Center on Mount Sinai, which will attract the Jews and the Mohammedans and the Christians and be a shrine for world peace. He's trying to correlate peace among those who are agitated, among those who see Jerusalem as a cup of trembling and a burdensome stone. But the Israeli Knesset has said, Jerusalem is going to be the capital. Well, what is the response from the Catholic world? Well, the Roman Catholic Church has never recognized Jerusalem as belonging to the Jews. They feel that it's a holy city and that it belongs to the Pope. You say, what is the response to the Muslim world uh, with this statement of the Knesset of this year that Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel? The response of the Muslims, I believe, was voiced in uh, the voice of Saudi Arabia who said... And I quote, holy war is the only way to deal with Israel's annexation of the city of Jerusalem. That's how the Muslims feel about it. The Catholics want control of it too. But one day, I want you to know, there was a prophet that said in Zechariah, the 12th chapter, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling and a burdensome stone to all people. That is being fulfilled. No one knows what to do with Israel. The United Nations doesn't know. Amen. We don't know. Who knows? There's a God in heaven that has a plan. We're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. Praise God. But so many forces are bidding for control of that area. And it seems like little Israel is out there standing alone. That is no accident, my friend. It is no accident that even the United States, who has been the longtime friend and ally of Israel, is kind of becoming neutral in a lot of the vital issues today, not quite as vocal in some areas. It appears that uh, even some of her best friends are turning away from her. That is no accident. 
because Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 23, 9 declared that there would be a day that the people would dwell alone, that the little nation would stand out there by herself and perhaps would even have just a few little friends left. And that is happening in your world and my world today. Praise God. But let's go back just for a moment to the family fuss. Amen. The sons of Isaac and Ishmael. Let's examine this a little further. Who is the culprit here? Who is the agitator? Again, I don't want to give you my opinion or what public opinion would be swayed with through any influence of any type of media or propaganda. I want to go to the Bible tonight. In Galatians, the fourth chapter, verse 29, it says that he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit and even so is it now who is he that was born after the flesh if you will examine that passage put it all together it will refer to Ishmael it says that Ishmael was born after the flesh and he was the one that was the agitator who uh, persecuted him that was born after the spirit so Ishmael persecuted Isaac and that hatred of Ishmael bled through and Sarah could hardly stand it as her little darling Isaac was being shoved away and scorned and ridiculed. She had a little meeting one day with Father Abraham and put that little pressure on that these women know how to do and said, now look at here. Something's got to give in this situation. And so Abraham got bold and said, cast out the son of the bondwoman. He can't stay here. And so that hatred carried on all of the enemies of the nation of Israel. It's right there in bold letters. The Ishmaelites. Ishmael has always warred against the seed of promise. And according to the scripture, Ishmael is the instigator of the family fuss. For instance, when the Arabs controlled the old ancient city of Jerusalem, they would not allow the Jews to come into the old city and worship at the Wailing Wall. That was forbidden. The Arabs controlled it and they forbade the sons of Isaac to come and worship the Wailing Wall. But when Israel recaptured the city in 1967, did they drive out all of the Arabs away from their land that they had built shrines? No. In fact, the Mosque of Omar are still there and other shrines in the city are still there and the Jews have permitted the Arabs to continue in their worship. But it is he that is born of the flesh that persecuted he that was born of the Spirit. And understand when uh, the Jordanians came in to build the Intercontinental Hotel on the Mount of Olives that they got bulldozers and went through the sacred Jewish cemetery and bulldozed down the tombstones to make a way for a road up to the hotel. And they took up the broken pieces of the Jewish tombstones, put them down on the ground to walk on them to have stepping stones to their outdoor toilets. And so we see that uh, that hatred is perpetual. And this dispute is raging. Amen. And it's not settled tonight. In, in spite of Camp David, I, I think that's a, a step toward it. And the Bible says one day that Egypt will be considered uh, blessed of God and that Egypt and Israel and perhaps even other sons of Ishmael will join together and worship 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the name of the Lord will be one. You say, is peace coming to the Middle East? Yes, it is. You say, when? I don't think I have to jump out on a limb to say this. It is coming when the Prince of Peace comes back during the millennial reign. Then there will be peace in all the earth, and this family fuss will be dissolved forever. Praise the Lord. But remember, the covenant was passed on through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, and a great nation developed. There's so much in this subject. I don't know which way to go tonight. It's so vast, so inexhaustible, because all of prophecy revolves around God's relation to this people. What a nation. What a people, Israel. Look what she's contributed to the world. She gave us Abraham the faithful, Moses the lawgiver, Joseph the statesman, Daniel the dreamer, Joshua the courageous, Samuel the faithful, David the warrior, Solomon the wise, and he and gave us Jesus Christ, praise God, the root and the offspring of David, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, praise God. We could go on and on and on and on and on. We could go into the field of music, into the field of art, the other fields of culture, and say, what a nation. Israel became great and finally reached her zenith one day in the days of the United Kingdom, the days of David and Solomon. But then came division. The northern kingdom, which later was referred to in the scripture as Israel and Samaria and Ephraim, went into uh, captivity in the north. And uh, there was not one righteous king among all of the ten tribes under the leadership of Jeroboam. In the southern kingdom called Judah, around Jerusalem, there were two tribes. Under Rehoboam, there were several revivals during that era of time. But eventually, both the northern and the southern kingdoms went into idolatry. And judgment came and they went into captivity with Israel going to Assyria and Judah into Babylon. Now, a question that I won't deal with real long, but uh, there is a doctrine going around that we want to talk about a little bit. What happened to the northern tribes? What happened to the ten tribes of Israel? Did they migrate away from the Assyrian captivity over several hundred miles into Europe? Uh, was David's throne moved away from Jerusalem over to Great Britain? And uh, did uh, that throne become a, a mythical descent of Zedekiah? And is the Anglo-Saxon race uh, Israel of today? Now these are some questions that are proposed by what is called a doctrine of British Israel. And this doctrine rests upon the false assumption and idea that the northern and the southern kingdoms existed as completely separate nations and that they went on to different destinies and that there was never a remingling or bringing back together uh, of the tribes and therefore these ten northern tribes eventually went over into Europe and the area of Great Britain. I want to say tonight that the Bible does not support such a fantasy of the mind of man. According to the Bible, there was a constant intermingling between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And I'll give you some scriptures in a few moments to prove that. But the ten tribes were not lost. 
They were not lost. They were scattered. They were dispersed. Hallelujah. But they were not lost. Amos had something to say about this. In Amos 9.9, the Lord said, I will sift the house of Israel, listen, among all nations. I will sift them among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Be sifted where? Just in a remote area called Great Britain? No. Confined to one geographical location? No. I will sift them as corn is sifted in a sieve throughout and among all nations. Hallelujah. And Deuteronomy 28, 64 said, And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth to another. Does it sound like one limited geographical condition to me? Throughout all the earth. And uh, I want to give you a scripture here. I'm not going to read it. But uh, for reference, if you want to look it up sometime, 2 Chronicles 11, 14 through 17 proves that the whole tribe of Levi joined the southern kingdom and brought back from the northern kingdom a large number of the ten tribes of Israel with them. Look that up sometime. And a short time later, in 2 Chronicles 15, 9, under King Asa, there was a revival in Judah, and there was a great number of this northern kingdom that united with the southern kingdom. And then later in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 25 through 26, under King Hezekiah, there was a godly remnant from the ten tribes that was included in the multitude that rejoiced together. Put those scriptures together and you will see that there was an intermingling that the ten tribes did not leave into other areas but came back around Jerusalem, had revival with the southern brethren. Praise God. There was a constant intermingling between the northern and southern kingdoms. And I might say this, if this British Israel doctrine is correct, then the apostle Peter made a dreadful mistake on the day of Pentecost because according to that doctrine, Israel was to have been transferred from Palestine to Great Britain many years prior to the day of Pentecost. But on the day of Pentecost, what did he say? Did he say, Peter stood in the midst of the eleven and said, Men and brethren, ye house of Judah, hear these words. No. Did he say, oh, I was about to say something, but I've got to get me an airplane ride over to Great Britain right quick because I'm in the wrong place. I've got a message for Israel, and they've moved out of here, and I've got to get over there. No, he didn't. He was standing in Jerusalem. And said, ye men of Israel, hear and hearken to my words. Hallelujah. Ye men of Israel, not Judah, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. Aren't you glad for truth tonight? Hallelujah. There's not, uh, I'm not going to stay on that any longer. Everybody said praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. There's not much description in the scripture concerning that 
period of time of dispersion, the scattering. But Hosea, in Hosea 3, 4, said, The children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without a teraphim. And afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Hallelujah. A period of time Hosea referred to as many days. Many days. Many days for a time of Gentile supremacy. Many days where there would be no nation of Israel as such, no king, no sacrifice. Many days where there would be Gentile empires that would rule the governmental affairs of the world. Many days that Jerusalem would be trodden down of the Gentiles. Many days that blindness in part would happen to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles would be come in. Many days that Israel would be dispersed and scattered among all nations. There's not a lot of scripture describing all of that period of time, but the prophets did give us some inspiration concerning the time of restoration when after the dispersion, after that they had been sifted like corn throughout all nations, that they would return and be restored to their relationship with God. The time of restoration of that nation of Israel was described by Amos in Amos 9.15 when he said, I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land. Isaiah 11, 11 said, The Lord shall set his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people. And Jerusalem, uh, or not Jerusalem, pardon me, uh, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah the 16th chapter that the days come that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all countries. There are many other scriptures that we could give to you, but it's very clear. The prophet said there's coming a day. They're going to be restored. And that restoration of Israel has begun in your day, in my day, in this last end time generation. And I think I might see in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 42, a description of something that took place in 1917 of our generation. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have bought all this evil upon the people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I promised them, and the fields shall be sought in this land, or bought in this land, and men shall buy fields for money, for I will cause their captivity to return. I want to ask you a question. There's a reference here to the purchasing of fields in Israel at the time that they would return to the land. Could this prophecy have been fulfilled in 1917 by General Balfour of British uh, of Great Britain as he declared and, and caused a declaration to be signed 
that Israel would be the national homeland for the Jews from that time? Could it be that Jeremiah looked through the telescopes of prophecy and said they're going to buy up land and they're going to restore it back and make a homeland for God's people? Amen. The restoration of Israel is right in progress right now. It, it, we're not waiting on it. Now, it's the full restoration it is not complete, but we have seen the introduction. The land is being restored like a homing pigeon that God puts that natural instinct into them. You can turn that bird loose many miles away. He's going to fly back and find that home spot. God put that instinct in him. Like the salmon up in the northwestern part of our country that go up and down those river streams out into the Pacific. It has been documented that some of those fish have been labeled. They were born in a certain trough in, in water on a, on a, on a salmon farm and uh, through the cycle of, of going down the river and swimming out into the Pacific uh, several months or years later would come back and jump right back into the same trough that they were born. Who told that fish to do that? God put that instinct in there. There is an instinct of God in the heart of every Jew in the world. No matter if he's in South America, North America, Russia, Europe, wherever God is saying to his people, it's time to go home. It's time to get back where it all started with Father Abraham many centuries ago. And like the homing pigeon, there they go, there they go. Amen. So there's restoration of the land and the nation. And uh, if you saw the charts Brother Stephen presented yesterday, uh, you saw that there is restoration of uh, the Hebrew language. For many years, from the captivity up until 1948, the Hebrew language was dead. But it has been revived since 1948. And the language of Israel, the original language, has already been restored. Are we in the midst of restoration? You better believe it. And in March of this year, 1980, or last year it was, this is 81. Praise God. You might get mixed up up here tonight too. Praise God. Uh, March of 1980, the old Hebrew shekel was restored, replacing the British pound that had uh, been the monetary system in Israel up until last year in the month of March. That Hebrew shekel now is the official currency and money standard for the nation of Israel. That's the same money unit that was used back in Bible days. Are we in the midst of restoration or not? In the city of Jerusalem, you've heard much already about this. There is uh, almost at the point of completion at this moment what is called the New Jerusalem Great synagogue and it is the restoration of temple what is the purpose of this synagogue why are they building that at this time i believe if you look at it closely you'll find that it's to reinstitute the temple worship and it is to establish animal sacrifices and all the ceremonial rites you say what do you base this on well the blueprint for the jerusalem great synagogue was printed in 1974 
by the rabbinical headquarters of Israel. And in that blueprint that was printed by the rabbinical headquarters of Israel, there is provision of listing of articles of furnishing for this new great synagogue. Some of the articles were an ark that would similar to the one that was used in the days of Solomon's temple, which will cost approximately $250,000. There was also an ark curtain and also candlesticks. And also in the blueprint of 1974 was provision for a bima. A bima. What is a, a bima in the scripture? Is in Ezekiel the 20th chapter verse 29 and if you'll look at it closely it refers to a high place of sacrifice in the original blueprints printed by the rabbinical headquarters they said there will be a place for animal sacrifice brother Urshan confirmed this yesterday in discussion that the Orthodox group has won the debate and they are making provision now to reinstitute animal sacrifice and today in Israel the young boys from the tribes of Levi and uh, from uh, the name family names of Cohen or Levi uh, are being schooled and trained for the restoration of sacrificial temple service and any Jew who is named Levi or Cohen or any form of these two words belongs to the priestly Levitical tribe. I say Israel is in the process of being restored to her fullness, but the fullness of restoration is not yet and cannot be completed until a certain time. You say, well, what time is that? I'm going to tell you in just a moment. You say, really? Really? Before Israel can reappear, the church has got to disappear. Hallelujah. Because the church must come to fullness before the restoration of Israel can come to fullness. Because Romans 11.25 declares blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles be come in. What does this mean? There will be a spiritual blindness on the nation of Israel until God gets finished with his Gentile people. Until the fullness of Gentiles come in. When God finishes his spiritual relationship with his Gentile bride, then he will restore his spiritual relationship with the nation of Israel. Praise God. Until that time, they will be blind to the things of God and God will complete his purpose with the church that he purchased with his blood. Hallelujah! I'm glad that one of these days, the bride will come into fullness. One of these days, the last person in the world will receive the Holy Ghost and speak with tongues. One day, the last person in the world will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. One day, the last person will make up the completion of the Gentile bride and then the Lord will say it's time to restore Israel because I'll lift the blindness now they can see but not until the fullness of Gentiles be coming in hallelujah and it may be at your youth camp that that happens it may be in your local church it may be in Africa but somebody in this world will be the very last person 
hallelujah, to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and find out that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but is joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah! And it could be tonight, Little Rock Prophecy Conference, Thursday night, if you get in in time, my friend, it could be that you will be the last one. And the Lord said, all right, I'm going to fulfill this purpose with the Gentiles and then lift the blindness from Israel. Hallelujah. You folks feel the Holy Ghost up in the back of the night? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I want to refer you to Acts the 15th chapter. Verse 14. Listen to this. Praise God. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and to this agree the prophets as it is written after this. I will return and build again the tabernacle of David which is fallen and I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up. Now everybody, listen. I'm going to tell you when the Lord's coming. Everybody listen. I'm going to give you a scripture here when the Lord's coming. Everybody listen. Got your attention? After this, I will return. That's when he's coming. At least I woke you up. After this, after this what? After this taking out of the Gentiles a people for the name of the Lord, the Lord said, I'm going to come back. After I take out of the Gentiles a people for my name. After this, I will return and I'm going to do something. I'm going to come back after I finish my relation with my Gentile bride and I'm going to build again the house of David which is fallen and build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up. I am telling you the church completion has got to come to fruition before Israel can be completely restored in the favor of God. Again, I say blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Hallelujah. Let's give the Lord a good hand clap. Hallelujah. Now don't forget, when Israel begins to come back to Palestine or all the Jews come back to the nation of Israel there, they're not saved. They are very much unconverted when they regather. And I said quite a bit about the sons of Ishmael a moment ago, but let me just interject this. An unregenerate Jew is not altogether the most lovely creature that you've ever beheld in this earth without God. And he is coming back to the land 
he does not believe in the Lord, he has not received the Messiah, and judgment must come to humble him. Ezekiel called it passing under the rod and being cast into God's melting pot. Jeremiah and Daniel called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus called it the great tribulation. And Zechariah said during that time of humbling that there would be a great mourning in Jerusalem. In the 10th chapter of Zechariah, the Lord said, I'll hear them, I'll hear that mourning, and uh, they shall be as though I had not cast them off. The people that say there is no more hope for Israel need to read these scriptures. God will turn back to Israel. Zechariah 12.10, the Lord said, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And he further said, And I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them again to place them, for I will have mercy on them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God and will hear them. Now I'm glad for the 11th chapter of Romans that tells me that as a wild olive branch, I as a Gentile could be grafted in to the true olive vine, but I know that if he's able to pluck off those branches, he is able to tie them back in again. And Zechariah said, it's going to happen. It's going to be as if I never plucked them away from the tree. It's going to be as if I never cast them off. And the scripture says that all of Israel shall be saved. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Have you been praying for the salvation of Jerusalem and Israel? Hallelujah. Praise God. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Well, the restoration of spiritual favor is coming with God and Israel. Zechariah again referred to ten men in those days that would grab or hold to the skirt of a Jew and he'd say, we're going to go with you because we've heard that God is with you. That restoration is coming. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let's thank the Lord for it. Praise God. Now we all are concerned about what Jesus said about Israel. In Luke 21, 29 through 32, Jesus referred to the fig tree generation. And he spake unto them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is nigh at hand. And likewise you, when you see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. 
This fig tree generation was to be filled with signs. And it is my personal belief that these signs do not refer to the rapture. These signs refer to the coming kingdom of millennial day. With the literal appearing of Jesus when he comes back to this earth. Praise God. The sign of the sun, the moon, the stars, distress of nations, sea and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, powers of the heaven being shaken, and this fig tree sign precede the physical return of the Lord back to this earth. And you notice that these signs are descriptive of our generation because all of these fit this generation and no prior generation. And in that same generation where there would be heavenly and earthly signs, Jesus said, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. What is the fig tree? In scripture, four trees have symbolized the nation of Israel. The bramble has symbolized carnal Israel. The olive, spiritual Israel. The vine, redeemed Israel. The fig, national Israel. So... The fig tree apparently refers to the nation of Israel and its national causes. Let me pause here before we behold the fig tree. Let's take a look just a moment. Everybody else has done this, so allow me the privilege to kind of shoot over the tree for a moment here and refer to all the trees. If the fig tree is Israel, the other trees are all the other Gentile nations. And he said, you watch all the nations. There is a formation of nations and power struggle in the world today, and I'm just going to refer to one part of it. And uh, that is John the Revelator's seventh government that is being established. In the 17th chapter of Revelation, there is a reference to eight governments that would develop in the whole scope of prophecy. And there is reference to that beast that would be the eighth world government, but he would come out of the seventh world government. John's seventh world government I believe is being fulfilled in our day in the person of the ten nations of Europe. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar's ten toes, Daniel's ten horns, and John's ten kings all refer to the same last day government, which is John's seventh government of Revelation 17, and that if this indeed is true, that I have some good news for the church of the living God tonight. If this indeed is the fulfillment of these prophecies, then praise the Lord, get your millennial shoes shined up, brother. We're fixing to have a time when the Lord comes back and sets up his kingdom in this earth. If we indeed are in the generation in which the ten kings have been introduced and many believe that January the 1st of this year, with the formation officially of the ten nations of the European common market, that there is at least a beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And if that be true, I want to give you a scripture tonight that turns my spiritual motor on. Praise God. Daniel, the second chapter, verse 44. And Daniel is referring to the ten kings. And listen. And in the days of these kings 
shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. <laughs> Which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. If indeed the ten toes, the ten horns, the ten kings are being fulfilled in our generation, then my brother, we have lived to see the days that Daniel said, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven is going to set up his kingdom in this earth. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now whether it be or not, we're all going to find out. But if it be, it's time to get excited about it. Hallelujah. I don't think there's anything wrong with shouting over that tonight. We are close to the coming kingdom. You have prayed for years. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in this earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is just about to be answered. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, there's been a lot said about speculation. And I'll tell you what, the devil just tormented me all day about this. <laughs> Folks, this is food for thought. <laughs> These are not my doctrines. These are not predictions. Let me say it for the tape. These are not predictions from this preacher tonight. I ran across some material that I thought rather interesting. I thought, man, that would really be interesting. There's going to be a lot of people in Little Rock that are searching and, and want to look at every avenue, and why don't we do that? So you want it or not? <laughs> Where's that elephant? <laughs> I could not deal with the subject of Israel and prophecy and not mention the significance of the definite time periods that God has had in relation to Israel. This is not original with me. Like I say, I've collected it through study. But God has dealt through the years with Israel in time periods, such as the period 30 years, which refers to the Jewish age of maturity. No man could enter the priesthood or have a political office till he was 30 years of age. The year 40 represents the Jewish number of testing. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, and Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years of testing. The year 50, very significant with the nation of Israel uh, in relation to restoration and jubilee. And every 50 years, the land would go back and revert to the original owner. Then, of course, the year 70 is referred to in Scripture as the length of a seed and perhaps a Jewish number for prophetic generation. 
Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, verse 29, refers to a generation in Jeremiah's day that was rejected of the Lord. And that rejection lasted for 70 years in captivity. And the scripture declares that three score and ten years is the average length of a seed from the birth to the death. And in prophetical terms, perhaps 70 might be uh, interesting for consideration in the length of prophetic generation. Now, a big question is, and uh, here we're feeling around the elephant now, and uh, this is not prediction. This is just food for thought tonight. When did that fig tree of the last generation appear? I don't know, and I'm going to say that from the beginning. Some think 48, some say 1917 with the signing of the Balfour Declaration. But let's just, just kind of feel around the elephant for a while, praise God, and uh, see what we can come up with. If indeed 1917 was the time that, that the fig tree first began to blossom forth for the public to see, if that were the beginning of the last generation, uh, then we have some interesting observations to make tonight. And uh, if we would add 30, which is the Jewish age of maturity to 1917, we would come up within a few short months of the year 1948, which might be significant. It took a while for them to grow up. They did not become a nation in 1917. It took 30 years of maturity and finally in 1948 developed into a Jewish nation. And since they became a nation in 1948, she has been under the torch, severely tested on every hand. The Jewish number of testing is 40. So you add 40 to 1948 and you come up with the year 1988. Could 88 be a significant year in prophecy? Could it be the end of Jewish tribulation? I don't know. We are studying here tonight. And remember, 50 is the Jewish number for restoration. This is very interesting. 50. And uh, the land reverted back every 50 years to the original owner. If you start at 1917 with the signing of Belfort Declaration and add 50 years to that, you come up with the year 1967. Isn't that interesting? The year of the Six-Day War. Did anything happen of significance? The old land, the old city, the old territory reverted back to the original owner in 1967. Praise God. Let's speculate some more. If it's possible for 70 to be the time of a prophetic generation, now I understand there are other uh, scriptural basis for other periods of time and generation, but perhaps uh, in prophetical sense, this is worthy of consideration. No matter when it happens, I believe we all agree it's in our day and in our time. Praise God. And I'm looking for it. But Let's add 70 uh, to 1917. You come up with 1987, and that might be significant. In fact, I'm going to make a blanket statement here. Every year from now on is going to be significant in Bible prophecy. Hallelujah. And I believe any day, any moment, he could split the eastern clouds, and we'll rise to meet him in the air. Praise God. But I really believe we are fastly approaching the kingdom age. And according to our Gregorian calendar, the year 2000 will mark the 6,000th year since Adam 
I'm very well aware that this may not be pinpoint accurate, that there could be a variation of a few short years either way. But brother, I believe we are in, as the apostle said, the times and the seasons of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The scripture declares that one day is with the Lord's a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. There have almost since the days of Adam, there have almost been six prophetic days of human history. Almost 6,000 years since Adam. Six is the number of man. Seven is the number of God's perfection. Man has just about had his day, brother. The day of man, six millennials of man's history is just about expired. And do you think that it is unreasonable to wonder if man's sixth day and God's seventh perfect day of millennial will end at this century? Is it unreasonable to think that we are close to what the prophets declared, to what Jesus warned us about and told us to watch for, what we are feeling in the witness of our prayer life as the Spirit bears witness, it is near. I'm here to tell you, I believe we are close to the kingdom age, and I realize that uh, that uh, this uh, seventh day is going to be wonderful, and there's one other scripture in relation to this, praise God. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Aren't we having a time here tonight? <clears throat> I want I'm by the way I'm talking about Israel tonight. In Hosea the 6th chapter. Let's consider Hosea's prophecy as we behold the fig tree once more. Hosea 6, 1 and 2. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he hath torn. And he will heal us. He hath smitten. And he'll bind us up. And after two days, will he revive us. And in the third day, he will raise us up. And we shall live in his sight. This is a direct prophecy concerning the nation of Israel. And the Lord said that they're going to be revived after they were torn and smitten of the Lord. Now when was this nation of Israel torn and smitten of the Lord? When they received judgment during the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus pronounced judgment upon them because they had rejected the prophets and had rejected him. And in which prophetic day was this judgment pronounced? It was the fourth prophetic day, 4,000 years from Adam to the time of Jesus Christ. It was in the fourth day that the Lord smote them and tore them with judgment. And Hosea said, 
two prophetic days or 2,000 years after they were torn and smitten of the Lord, they'd be revived again. How long has it been since Jesus was on this earth? Almost two prophetic days. Almost 2,000 years have elapsed since Israel was torn and smitten of the Lord. I believe that the third day in which the Lord will raise up the nation of Israel and restore them to spiritual power is almost upon us tonight. Praise God. I believe that we are in the generation upon whom the end of the world is come. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Sure getting quiet now. I better get back to the scripture. Hallelujah. Thank God. We cannot adequately preach about Israel without mentioning one more thing here. And that is the significance of the seven feasts of Israel. Brother Sabin briefly mentioned this the first night. All of these Old Testament Jewish feasts were prototypes of prophecy, foreshadowing New Testament events to come. Four of these seven feasts have already been fulfilled in New Testament events. The Passover was fulfilled at Calvary. The unleavened bread is fulfilled in the life of every New Testament believer as he purges out the leaven of worldliness. The first fruits was fulfilled when Jesus became the first fruits of them that slept in the resurrection. And then Pentecost, of course, was fulfilled in the New Testament birthday of the church. The Feast of Pentecost was the last Jewish feast to have been fulfilled. There are three others that remain for future fulfillment. And of course, in the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament, it was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Interestingly, it was 50 days after resurrection that the Holy Ghost fell on the day of Pentecost. In the old Feast of Pentecost, two loaves were waved before the Lord. In the fulfillment of that scripture or that feast, there were not two loaves waved before the Lord, but there were two groups of people that formed the church and were baptized into one body, the Jews and the Gentiles. And this point is so interesting to me tonight. And that is that there was a long period of time between the Feast of Pentecost and the next feast to come. All of the other feasts lapped within a day or so. And one would end and the other would begin. But between Pentecost and the other feast to follow it, there was a long four-month period of waiting and this was a period of harvest where they could get the crops in. And then the harvest was ended and was signaled to an end by the introduction of that next feast. All four of the Jewish feasts uh, that have found New Testament fulfillment have been fulfilled in chronological order. The last one was Pentecost. There are three more. What is the next one that we wait for? 
what will interrupt the long waiting as the husbandman patiently waits for the fruit of the earth after the first and the latter rain? What is that long period of harvest going to be ended with? I believe it's going to be ended with the same thing that ended the time of harvest in the Old Testament. What is it? He got out there and lifted up to their mouth a little instrument and the sounding of trumpets ended the harvest. We've been working. We've been in the field. Summer's ended. Harvest is past. Somehow I've got the feeling that it won't be too long. The next feast and fulfillment, if it follows chronological order, the others have, perhaps this one will. Are you tired and weary? Be not weary in your well-doing, for in due season you'll reap if you faint not. Praise God, I am getting excited right now. It could be that our harvest is going to be interrupted any minute with the sounding of trumpets. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise the Lord, everybody. Y'all still love me? Still feel the Holy Ghost here tonight? Praise God, praise God. Now I want to just preach a little bit here. Praise God. I want to show you something. All of this prophecy preaching is wonderful. I think it's necessary. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We need to inform our people. We need to know the days and the times in which we live. But by the same token, let me tell you something. There are people, and if they don't hear it preached right, are going to be scared to death. And it's not the will of God for the church to go around terrified. It's not the will of God for saints to be afraid of tribulation. It's not the will of God for all for us to talk about is Russians, bombs, tribulation, antichrist, nuclear warfare. Amen. We are not given to a spirit of fear, but of love and of peace and of a sound mind. Hallelujah. And while we must be aware of the day in which we live, the scripture says, be not soon shaken in your mind or be troubled neither by spirit or by word nor by letter from us that the day of Christ is at hand. Don't get terrified. Now if you don't have the Holy Ghost, you got a right to be scared. It'll scare the liver out of you. Amen. 
But it's not the will of God for a born again child of God to go around. Oh, the world's coming at him. What are we going to do? We're going to buy up surplus and go to the mountains and live in caves and, and get dried food and, and uh, <clears throat> praise God. Don't let the day of Christ terrify you. Hallelujah. Don't be soon shaken in your mind. Praise God. I think we need to put our emphasis where it belongs. Hallelujah. I think we ought to tell them about the Antichrist. But rather than saying, I'm looking for the Antichrist. Let's say, I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hallelujah. Rather than saying, oh, I'm concerned about tribulation. Let's say, oh, I'm concerned about being ready for translation. Yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Be not soon shaken in your mind, neither by spirit nor word. Hallelujah. That the day of Christ is coming upon you. Jesus had great church one day as his disciples were gathered around and performed one of the most spectacular miracles that I've ever read anywhere when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. His disciples witnessed that. Oh, I'm sure they were impressed. I'm sure it was the talk after church. I'm sure they had it on their mind. You cannot help but talk about great services and the miraculous power of God. Oh, it was wonderful. Did you see how it did? I've never seen anything like it. Oh, yes. But right after that great miracle, the same disciples got in a boat and got out in the water and a storm came up and the wind began to blow and the spirit of fear came upon the disciples during the storm. And they got their eyes on the wind, waves, all the commotion. And there is a statement that startles me. In the midst of the storm, the inner select circle of Christ's disciples considered not the miracle of the loaves. In other words, they got their attention on what was happening around them so much. That's all they could think about. They couldn't think about the same God that had the ability to multiply loaves and fishes could also subtract the wind. They lost their spiritual perception because they got distracted by the storm. What am I saying? Let's keep our head on. Hallelujah. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let the Russians come. Let the bombs burst. Let the talk speculate in the world. We will keep our eyes upon Jesus while the storm blows. Hallelujah. Well, you can talk about the mark of the beast and the Jupiter effect and all these horrifying things and, a, and an old depressing spirit can come. Now, I'm going to keep on preaching prophecy when I get home. But I'm still going to preach, repent, and be baptized, every one of you. Going to preach divine healing. Going to preach the gifts of the spirit. Going to preach 
the whole package, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I'm going to tell my people, when you see these things begin to come to pass, when they first get started, when they first begin to appear, you lift up your head then. <laughs> Don't wait till you get in the middle of it. Your redemption is close. Your redemption is nigh. Hallelujah. What does that mean? Your redemption draweth nigh. Weren't we redeemed at Calvary? Weren't we redeemed at Calvary? Yes, our souls were redeemed at Calvary by blood. But our redemption is not complete. Our bodies are going to be redeemed by the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Hallelujah. Your redemption draweth nigh. When you see these things begin to come to pass, lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Praise God. You know what? I'm not listening for bombs. I'm listening for trumpets. Praise God. Halabashayakaya. Praise God. And I'm going to throw this in in the beginning or the end here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it interesting to look in the book of Revelation and see before even the first seal of tribulation is open? There is a group of people around the throne. They're worshiping, they've got a new song, and they've got crowns. Before the first seal is ever open. In fact, they're the group that says, Jesus, you're the one that's worthy to open the seals. Who is this group? This is not feeling around the elephant now. The Bible says, these are they that were redeemed by his blood from every nation, from every tongue, from every kindred. If that's not the church, what is the church? Were we not redeemed? Hallelujah. Not with corruptible things such as silver and gold but by the precious blood of him that sits on the throne who is worthy to open the seals. Hallelujah. I'm happy to tell you, it looks to me like the church is already seated in heaven before the seals are open. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You feel like praising the Lord, stand to your feet and let's glorify him. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. The King is coming. The King is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding hallelujah and now his face I see the king is coming 
praise God, He's coming for me. just heard the trumpet sounding, and now his face I see, the king is coming. 